Welcome to Purpose Church. My name is Eric and I'm one of the pastors here and we are so glad that you are joining us today. Let's open our Bible to the book of Colossians. And and while you're flipping to Colossians, in this amazing letter, I think there's at least three paradigm shifting truths and ideas that God would want to say to you and to me as we gather together. But before we get there, I want to provide a little bit of context for the book of Colossians. So we're going to talk about the author. We're going to talk about the city that Colossians was written to, and then we will talk about the letter. So let's talk about facts about Paul, facts about Paul, the apostle. He was a Jewish born, he was Jewish born in the city of Tarsus near the Syrian border in modern day Turkey. Now we have a picture of that, a a map of that. So here's Turkey and Tarsus is just right there in the south part of Turkey. Let's go back to the facts about Paul. He was a Roman citizen. He was prominent and highly educated Jewish religious leader, a Pharisee, dramatically converted to Christianity in 3580, just a few years after Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Uh, He's the primary apostle to the Gentiles and a tireless missionary sharing the gospel with them. He was imprisoned in Rome in 67 AD during Nero's reign, and then he ended up dying in prison a year later in 68 AD. Now let's look at facts about Colossae, the the city. It was located 100 miles east of Ephesus. Now we have a map that I want to take us to right now. So here is Colossae right over here, a part of Asia Minor. You'll see some of the other locations of some of the New Testament letters. But Paul was most likely in Rome, sent a letter to Colossae. Let's go back to the city. Together with Hierapolis and Laodicea, Colossae was part of a tri-city area in the Lycus Valley in what is now south-central Turkey. Once an important city, but but by the time of Paul, Colossae had become a small market town. The population was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. There were about 11,000 Jews by 62 AD. Now let's look at some facts about Colossians, the letter. Possibly the first of Paul's prison epistles, which were Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, written from Rome in 60 to 62 AD. The churches in Colossae were not founded or visited by Paul, but probably founded by Epaphras, who we'll meet in a moment, who is mentioned twice in the letter. Colossians was written to encourage a group of believers who were growing spiritually and warn a group of believers who were being confronted with false teaching, which undermined the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. Now let's get into the three paradigm shifts from the book of Colossians. Number one is this, the gospel going global starts with you. Find me in Colossians chapter one, verses three to six. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of all the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. You see, when I read these verses, the first question that just popped off the page to me was this, what are you known for? What are you 
known for? And how do you have a kind of extraordinary faith and, and exhibit extraordinary love? Well, well, the answer to that, according to Paul, is you have a hope that's rooted in the gospel. Not a hope that's rooted in any circumstances, but hope that's rooted in the unchanging eternal gospel. And then in verse six, Paul says that this gospel is going global, that it's growing throughout the whole world. And you need to know that, that this gospel message is not just for you and your friends or the specific location you find yourself in. The gospel is not an American thing. The gospel is Global. In, in fact, just last week, Pastor Glenn and Pastor Sham and I returned from India where we got to see this firsthand. In fact, you're, you're going to see a photo of a woman who shared her testimony with us while we were there. You, you see, this woman grew up Hindu, worshiping Hindu gods. But after she had gotten married and had some children, she became very ill and she became very sick. In fact, she found herself in a hospital bed on her deathbed about to die. But you see some pastors had come alongside her. In fact, the other guy in the photo is one of the pastors who had met with her and had begun to share the gospel with her. Well, when she was going to bed that night, when she was almost about to die in the hospital, she fell asleep and in a dream, a man in a white robe visited her and touched her. And in the dream, she was healed. But it wasn't just the dream because when she woke up, she was really legitimately physically healed. The doctors checked her. She, she was no longer sick. She had been healed. But, but this confused her because the Hindu gods that she had been worshiping never visited her. And, and yet this man in a white robe visited her. And so she went to her pastor once she got out of the hospital and said, can you explain this to me? Who is this man in the white robe? And her pastor said, let me tell you about him. His name is Jesus. This woman gave her life to Christ and her husband and her kids came to faith as well. She's a leader in their church because the gospel is spreading throughout the whole world. Well, Paul continues verses seven to eight. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. You see, the most significant day in Colossae was not the day that Xerxes rested in the city in his march against Greece. Nor was it the day Cyrus marched his Greek army through the city. No, the most significant day in the history of Colossae was the day that Epaphras came to town and planted the seed of the gospel that would eventually travel to the ends of the world. Epaphras shows up three times in the New Testament, twice in Colossians and once in Philemon. Epaphras is described in this verse, verse seven, as being someone who faithfully shared the gospel. And then in the last chapter of the book of Colossians, in chapter four, verse 12, he's described as someone who wrestles in prayer for the people of Colossae. I just couldn't help but think to myself, who was your Epaphras? Who was the person in your life who shared the gospel with you and who prayed fervently 
for you, who wrestled in prayer for you? Was it your mama? Was it your dad? Was it an aunt or uncle? Was it a college roommate? Was it a professor? Was it a significant friend in your life? Who was it that shared the gospel with you and fervently prayed for you? Prayed for you and, but then I have an even more challenging question for you. Who are you an Epaphras to? Who are you regularly sharing the hope of Jesus with? Who are you at night before you go to bed praying, wrestling in prayer for that God would rescue them? Paul says in verses nine through 10, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. You see this idea of bearing fruit, it shows up in John chapter 15 in verses eight and nine. Jesus said this, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. You see, we should be praying for each other about a whole number of things. Any prayer request is valuable and important, but I think the most important prayer request that Christians should be praying for each other is this, Lord, bear fruit with their lives. That is God's goal for our lives, for each one of us. He wants to use your story. He wants to use your circumstances. He wants to use your life to bear fruit. And to me, that actually gives a lot of hope, especially in our times of suffering. Because the truth is this, your skills and talents alone won't bear spiritual fruit. But remaining in Jesus' will every single time. And so here's my invitation to you. Here's here's my call to action. In light of the fact that the gospel going global starts with you, I want to challenge you to either start or join a Bible club on your school campus or to start and join a Bible study in your workplace. Or maybe God's calling you to start or join a life group. Yeah, maybe you're right now being called by the Holy Spirit, knowing that the gospel going global starts with you to lead a life group. Paul continues, Colossians 1, 13 to 14. And, and, and maybe before I read this, maybe part of you is going, okay, but Eric, what is the gospel? What even is that? I'm so glad you asked. Paul says, for God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Did you hear that? The gospel is the rescue operation of God. The gospel is that you and I were spiritually dead, that we are living in darkness and Jesus Christ came for us. That through his death and his resurrection, every sin, every struggle, every chasm between us and God, every act of selfishness, all of it is forgiven. And you and I can have eternal life with him. 
You see, at the root of the gospel is this. God prioritized your life so much that he was willing to give up his own in your place. It it reminded me of one of my newest favorite movies, Mission Impossible. The new one, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1. Don't worry, I won't give any spoilers, but there's a scene where the Mission Impossible force team promises their newest recruit that they will keep her safe. And I love this scene because Ethan Hunt, who is Tom Cruise, in this stellar performance, he, he actually interrupts them and he says this to her. That's not true. I can't promise to keep you safe, but I swear that your life will always be more important to me than my own. You see, the reality is, especially for some of our brothers and sisters who are following Christ around the world, safety is not guaranteed. The gospel is the best news in the world because it promises us meaning and significance today, but for all of eternity but it doesn't guarantee us safety, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Why? Because long before God ever asked you to give up your life for him, he chose to give up his life for you. The second paradigm shift in Colossians is this. If you are willing, Jesus is able. Colossians 1, 18 and 19, Paul's just about to go off on how big of a deal Jesus is. He says, and Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Did did you hear it? Jesus is the head of Purpose Church. Jesus is the leader of our lives. Jesus is the leader of Purpose Church. And thanks be to God, because I'm an imperfect leader. Pastor Glenn's an imperfect leader. All of us are imperfect leaders. It's why Jesus is the head of this church, and he's the head of every church. And and Paul says, in in case you're not understanding it, I need to double down on this in the next chapter, chapter two, verse nine, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. You see, Paul is saying something really profound about Jesus. And it's this, Jesus isn't just an interesting philosopher. He's the Lord of the universe. Jesus isn't just giving you advice. Jesus is giving you truth. Do do you see him as the Lord of the universe? Do you see him as the one and only truth? But the reality is when Jesus started sharing truth, there were a lot of people who had a hard time swallowing that pill. There were a lot of people who who walked away. And in fact, there's this moment recorded in John chapter six after some have left Jesus because of what he had taught. But, But look at what happened. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
You know, if I were to translate that into the NEV, a new Eric's version, here's what I might say Peter is saying. I think Peter is saying, Jesus, I don't always understand immediately what you are saying, but your words are eternal life and you are the Holy One of God. So I'm going to assume that I'm the one that needs to change, not you. Paul goes into more of this. He, he, he talks about when Jesus is the head of all things and you see him for who he actually is, it becomes more motivating and, and inspiring to do what he'll say next. Verse 28 and 29. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. You see, Paul says that this, this strenuously contending for the gospel, that it, it, it takes some energy. In fact, the English word for strenuously contend is the Greek word kopio agonizomai, which means to grow tired from fighting. In the Greek, it's sort of the image of a boxer who is never giving up, though they're growing tired. The business, the Christian business, global business leader, Peter Lowe, he, he, he says this quote, I love it. The most common trait I have found in successful people is that they conquered the temptation to give up. You see, this is important. Paul says that as I continuously, as I strenuously contend for the gospel, I'm doing it through the power of Christ at work in me. This is really significant because for a lot of us, we try to be Christian without Christ. In fact, one of the biggest mistakes you can make is trying to follow Jesus without Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me just tell you this. Stop trying to be a Christian without Christ. You can't do it. You need Jesus every step of the way to follow Jesus. And Satan knows that. And so one of his favorite tactics is to convince you that following Jesus is about saying a prayer with no life change at all. In fact, he wants to convince you that as long as you pray some prayer when you're in the third grade, that everything's great and you can go on living your life however you want to. But friends, that is a purposeless, meaningless life. God designed you to have a life full of purpose that is empowered by Jesus Christ every single day day. Your life was designed for purpose. Don't waste it. On May 20th in the year 2000, in a damp field in Memphis, 40,000 college students showed up to a Christian worship conference called Passion. After an extended time of worship, John Piper delivered one of his most defining sermons in which he retells this true story from a Reader's Digest article that he had once read about a married couple who had took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast when the husband was 59 and the wife was 51. They moved to Punta Gorda, Florida, where they spent the rest of their life 
cruising on their 30-foot trawler, playing softball and collecting shells. John Piper looked at the crowd in Memphis and said to them, that's a tragedy. Piper went on to say, and people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. It's as if you would say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Piper concluded simply saying, don't waste your life. Don't waste it. And big idea number three, the third paradigm shift in Colossians is this. Jesus wants, to, Jesus wants you to be his doppelganger. I don't know if you heard that word before. Jesus wants you to be his doppelganger. Ganger. What, what, what's a doppelganger? Here, here's the definition. A doppelganger is a biologically unrelated lookalike or a double of a living person. The word doppelganger is German and literally means double walker as in a shadow of yourself. And, and maybe you've seen celebrity doppelgangers. These, these are all over the place where there's a celebrity that's really well-known and then somebody who's not a celebrity but looks just like them. Here's some famous popular celebrity doppelgangers. The first one is Matthew McConaughey. We all love him. Matthew McConaughey. Check out this dude. I mean, and this guy is from like the Civil War era. Not biologically related at all. But I'm just saying that guy could have made millions. I mean, this is a crazy parallel. Let, let's go to another one. I love this one. This is Steve Harvey. This is actually a pastor. His name is Pastor Olden. And he gets confused for Steve Harvey all the time. Maybe it's that awesome mustache. Let's go to the next one. Check out this next one. Okay, this is Lee Dahey. She is a famous Korean drama actress. And this is her doppelganger over here. And I just need to know, if you're like a K-drama person, if you're a Korean drama person, you love those shows, hey, that's amazing. I haven't dabbled in those shows yet, but I know they're a really big thing. So that's, that's super awesome. I think we have a few more. The, the next one is, oh, okay, here's Michael B. Jordan and Nick Cannon. They get confused all the time. And, and then here's our, our last one. And it's really the question, which one is Taylor? T Swift. Which one is it? This one over here? Is it this one over here? So I, I'll give you time to guess at home, but actually the real Taylor Swift is right over here to the left. And this young woman to the right gets confused for Taylor all the time. Now, before we talk more about what it means to be Jesus's doppelganger, I, I want to go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Let, let's pause right there. Every Jewish person in the audience at this time, hearing this letter for the first time would have said, okay, Paul, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Paul. Those words, holy, chosen, dearly loved, those are titles for Jews. Those are Old Testament titles that Yahweh, that God had given to the Old Testament people of God. But, but now, Paul, you're saying that those go into to everyone? I mean, 
look at what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. So you see, it's baked in the Old Testament that these titles, holy, chosen, dearly loved, that they belong to the people of God. But what Paul is saying in this moment is profoundly theological. He is saying these Old Testament titles have now been transferred to both Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ. Paul says that we're loved. Now now what's hard about the word love is in the English language, we got one word to describe how I feel about dipping my raising Cane's chicken into that cane sauce as I do about my wife. It's the word love. But in the Greek language, there's actually four different words for love. Eros is romantic love. Stergo is family love. Philos is friendship love. And agape is self-emptying, self-sacrificing love. This is the kind of love, agape. This is the kind of love that Paul is describing. He's saying Jesus Christ emptied himself, sacrificed himself in an unconditional way to show you how much he loves you. Now, in light of that, Paul will go on and say, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, before we talk about these eight Christian virtues, why would Paul use the phrase clothe yourselves. What's significant about that? Well, I've got three reasons here and and they're not like super theological or academic, but they just kind of made sense to me about why Paul would say, clothe yourselves with these eight Christian values. Number one, we put our clothes on before we do most things. Uh, when, when your neighbor comes over and knocks in the morning to borrow some eggs, I mean, they're blessed, you're blessed, the whole neighborhood's blessed that you're not walking out in your whitey tidies, right? You got clothes on. You see, what's the spiritual application? Don't wait till the afternoon to prioritize compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other, forgiveness, and love. Prioritize it from the beginning. Second reason is others usually notice our clothing before most other things. Before you can hear somebody's accent, before you know somebody's story, you can observe them and see what they are wearing. The spiritual application, let your first impression, your first encounter and experience with a person be compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with forgiveness and love. And then lastly, number three, our clothes stay with us longer than most things. What's the practical spiritual application? 
practicing compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with forgiveness and love isn't a one and done activity, but a lifestyle that's cultivated over a long period of time. Now as Christians, sometimes we get it twisted, uh, feeling like you can either have grace or works and you can't have both. And maybe sometimes we're uncomfortable with this idea of trying as Christians. But remember, Paul says you do it empowered by Christ, but we still have some discomfort with it. And I love the way that Dallas Willard, the the late Christian philosopher, made it so simple and yet so brilliant. Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Clothing yourselves with these eight virtues is not about earning God's love. It's about responding to God's love. And maybe for you, you've worn the Christian label. Maybe for you, you you go around and everybody knows from the get-go that you are Christian. And yet you gossip. You're reckless with your words. You're harsh. You're overly critical. And the problem is you're off brand. You're missing what it means to reflect Christ. Ladies, maybe you're thinking about dating somebody and, and the guy you're interested in dating and man, he's got style. He, he, he wears the coolest clothes. Maybe you like a rugged man and he's got North Face gear and, and you think that's absolutely awesome, but he's got no Jesus in him. It's time for you to click return. If, if these eight virtues aren't present in his life and none of us are perfect, but if these eight virtues aren't present in our life or the people that we are in a significant romantic relationship with or those that we are closest with, then it's time to reevaluate everything. And so to close out our time, I want to talk about the eight virtues Christians are commanded to prioritize and exemplify. And the reason I use the word commanded is because in the original language, when Paul says, clothe yourselves, it's in the imperative. That means it's a command, not a suggestion. So let's look at them together. Number one, compassion. This comes from the Greek word splagiknon. Splagiknon, it's it's where we get our English word spleen from. You see, compassion is something that happens at a gut deep level where you see somebody suffering or struggling and you want to help. You want to do everything you can to care for them and support them. Maybe it's been a long time for you since you felt compassion for anyone. Maybe right now is just an opportunity for you to pray and say, God, I don't feel compassion for my spouse, for my kids, for my coworkers, for the people I'm leading. Ask God to give you compassion. Number two, kindness. The Greek word here has kind of an image behind it. It's the image of wine, which has grown mellow with age and lost some of its harshness. You see, part of, part of clothing yourselves with the character traits of Christ, with these eight virtues, is is recognizing that even a lack of kindness, even a text that maybe the rest of us would read and think it was absolutely fine, but you know there was a jab in there. Maybe that that slight comment towards your kids or towards your family or towards a coworker that, that was meant with a little bit of meanness needs to be exposed to Christ. 
There's a funny illustration of this between the Irish playwright, George Bernard Shaw and Winston Churchill. Once George Bernard Shaw wrote a letter to Winston Churchill, the prime minister of the United Kingdom. In Shaw's letter, he wrote, enclosed are two tickets to the opening night of my first play. Bring a friend if you have one. You see that little nudge there? Churchill replied, dear Mr. Shaw, unfortunately, I'll be unable to attend the opening night of your play due to a prior engagement. Please send me tickets for a second night if you have one. Now, now that's humorous, but if, if we're honest, there's a jab there. The third virtue is humility. I, I love the way the late, great Tim Keller described humility in one of my favorite books, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I start most years reading it. He says this, the thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Number four, gentleness. Now, sometimes in our culture today, gentleness can be looked down upon. Having power or, 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 or violence can, can seem a, a greater strength, but it's not. It's not. In, in, in fact, in the kingdom of God, gentleness is prioritized. You see, anyone can rage against another person. Gentleness is true strength exhibited through self-control. Number five, patience. Patience is simply believing this moment isn't the end of the story. It's, it's prayerfully saying, I can trust this mess in God's hands. It's saying everything in me wants to no longer listen to this person or remove them from my life but I'm going to be patient and trust that God is working. There, there's this well-known late pastor. Uh, we'll show him up on here on the screen. The late prominent African-American pastor, Reverend Dr. Albert Louise Patterson Jr. once said that there are three qualities necessary for every pastor. He, he said, number one, patience with people. Number two, patience with people. And you may have guessed it, friends. Robert, let's see it. Number three, patience with people. These are not only keys to pastoral ministry, but just to living as a Christian. Number six, six is bearing with each other. We talked about this last week, but the English word bearing with each other comes from the Greek word anekomai. And the meaning is to be patient with, to endure with, to undergo something with, to put up with, and to even accept a complaint from. Number seven, forgive. And Paul says, he says, he says, I know this is a personal one. So I want you to forgive as the Lord forgave to forgive is to cancel a debt. Christian therapists, Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend said this, as the 18th century poet Alexander Pope said, to err is human, to forgive divine. And not to forgive is the most self-destructive thing we can do. 
Forgiveness is very hard. It, it means letting go of something that someone owes you. And oh, I know it is hard to forgive. And right now you're going, Eric, you don't understand the thing that that person did. I, I know that it is hard to forgive. But I also know this to be true. That if you don't forgive, the thing that they did to hurt you will continue to define you. And then number eight, Paul says, and over all these, wear love. You guessed it. It's that Greek word agape. That self-emptying, self-sacrificing kind of love. But Paul says over all these. And if we're running with the imagery of clothing ourselves with these virtues over these, Paul's talking about the belt. He's talking about the thing that holds it all together. You see, love is an irreplaceable virtue for the follower of Jesus. And, and here's, here's the bad news, friends. Your natural tank of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other, forgiveness, and love, your natural tank of those things will get empty real quick. But here's the good news. Jesus has a never-ending tank of compassion, Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with forgiveness and love for you. And you too can clothe yourself with those things when you're empowered by Christ. Because after all, Jesus is inviting you and calling you to be his doppelganger, to be his lookalike. And if you are willing Jesus is able because the gospel going global starts with 